Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of Care, Dr. Andrew Moffitt. Andrew's life can only be described as cosmopolitan. Born an animal lover in Australia, he moved to London to work at over countless different veterinary clinics over the years. While there, he knew he'd eventually want to start his own veterinary hospital and acquired a degree at Cass Business School. When a fellow alum contacted him about an opportunity to buy a relative's vet clinic in California, Andrew emigrated. He saw further opportunities to expand the scope of the operation. And after multiple successful acquisitions, he decided to found Vetencare, a management group for their properties in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Not only has Andrew fulfilled his dream of having his own clinic, he now manages multiple of them, providing high-quality care services and access to thousands of families for their pets. Vetencare Inc. is growing like crazy. So, Andrew, thank you for being here today. Let's get right into it. Yeah, my pleasure, Drew. Great to be here today. Thanks for having me. Yes. I was just telling you before we started, um, what a nostalgic and fun feeling it is to have an Australian accent in my ear again after having Uncle Scotty live with us for a few years from Brisbane. Uh, So I'm excited to talk with you today and and really hear in your own words, how did we get here today? I know we took our stab at your story in the intro, but what would you add to that? Well, it's 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 funny, uh, you know. I I've always had an entrepreneurial flair to what I wanted to do. I've, I mean, I wanted to be a vet since I was five years old, and so uh, feel very lucky to sort of have have made that uh, made that happen. But I also, from a pretty early age, had an interest in business. So, you know, when I was at school, I set up a sort of Christmas tree delivery business, and then at vet school, I sort of had a business importing surgical equipment from Pakistan and and selling that to, to vet students. So I've, I've always loved and been interested in trying to combine my passions for, for animals and, and, and the veterinary space with, with my interest in, in business. Um, and um, I mean, your story is approximately right. I sort of started my vet degree in Melbourne, Australia, but finished it at the vet school in New Zealand, which is a pretty, pretty prestigious uh, um, American accredited vet school um, in, in New Zealand. Um, but I didn't stay there after graduation. I went straight to the UK and practiced in, in England for, for five years and um, pr- pretty quickly into practice, I knew I wanted to own a veterinary hospital. And that, at that time in England, uh, um, there was a lot of consolidation going on. There were a lot of larger companies trying to get into the veterinary space and buy veterinary clinics that just couldn't get my foot in the door. And uh, I simultaneously did a business degree in London. And during my degree, I met a number of sort of human hospital uh, groups. And I was actually, you know, I was so at some uh, one point, I was so disenchanted with being a veterinarian that I was actually considering getting out of veterinary and and working uh, in human hospitals and considering um, not working as a human doctor but uh, um, managing human hospitals. And (laughs) uh, I was uh, sort of ready to press the button on that. And I got a random call from a buddy from vet school who was a few years below me. His name's Jerob Leeper. Jerob now practices in Hawaii. And he sort of called me up and said, hey, Andrew, I'm looking to buy my uncle's veterinary hospital in in Northern California. Um, Don't quite know how to go about it. Do you want to come and do it with me? And so um, uh, flew out to America on a one-way ticket and, and sort of just planned to come out for a year or two and 
give it a run and 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 um and, and you know it ended up being sort of my version of the american dream you know it's it's it, it sort of uh um, it's consumed uh, all my purpose, and um, and it was really the spot I, I needed to be. Um, so when I arrived in Northern California, you know the the industry was very different to England, where England was sort of ten years ahead with regards to consolidation of the veterinary industry hadn't really started in America, and so um, I was able to take all my experiences from. A practice in the UK where there was a, a lot more consolidation and collaboration amongst veterinary hospitals and, and put that to work in Northern California by helping smaller independent clinics work together in a community setting and being able to gain some economy of scale to uh, compete more um, uh, um, competitively with, with some of the larger veterinary chains in America. And that's how it all started. Wow. Now, I want to back up because I'm always fascinated when someone knows what they want to do from an early age because there's so many people that don't, myself included. And I'm curious to you, why do you think veterinary animals, I guess, taking care of animals, grabbed your attention from such an early age? Mate, I got no idea, but but my mum tells a story. (laughs) I was like five years old and like where all the other kids are watching cartoons. I'm watching like Animal Planet and Steve Irwin run around after crocodiles. I was just obsessed with that stuff. And, you know, in my summers, I'd be out in the bush chasing lizards and frogs and all that jazz. And, um, yeah, I was watching some sort of vet on TV and, and I said, hey, mom, what's what's that person? And she said, an animal doctor. And I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And, and just all my life, that's all I wanted to be. But, wow. you know, we, we lived in the city. We didn't live on a farm. Uh, Dad's a dentist. But, and we had animals, but there was never like a veterinarian in the family. But uh, my sister's a veterinarian. My younger sister's a veterinarian. And she actually lives and works alongside me over here in, in California, which is pretty no cool. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a far better vet than I. But, um, <laughs> but I, I feel pretty lucky to work with my sister, which is awesome. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. I imagine Steve Irwin, was he, was he a little bit like a local hero? He was. I mean, he was just an inspiration to me and, uh, like, yeah, you know, just inspired me to – to really um, get out in the wild and, and, and explore and have an interest in Australian animals. And, yeah. um, you know, that was my first passion, wildlife. And, and I still do a lot of exotic practice to this day. But, yeah, certainly Steve Irwin was an inspiration. And, um, yeah, I think – Man, he captured, he captured global attention. Like, I grew up watching him, you know, all the way over here in America. I loved him. He, he did. And, and like, you know, you'd think I left Australia 16 years ago, you'd hope the accent would have rubbed off a bit more. But, but, but like when I speak, everyone asks if I, if I know Steve Irwin and um, <laughs> had, had luxury of going to a presentation he, he spoke at um, uh, and, and, you know, introduced uh, myself briefly. But um, yeah, I mean, man, um, yeah, sometimes it's funny, you know, I, I get, clients who say oh my uncle lives in this part of australia do you know them and and i and i i I have to reassure the person that there's more than 10 of us in australia and we all don't hang out together you know that's right man just speaking of him uh real quick and we don't we were not gonna make the whole podcast about him but uh i was reading a book to my my i have two daughters i have a son but my two daughters are share a room and i read them a story every night and they had rented a book from their their library and wanted me to read it. And it was by Steve Irwin's daughter, Bindi, I think, about animals. And it was so neat to see that 
you know, the kids are carrying on the same tradition and passion as their dad. And I got to read her book about animals to my kids and they loved it. They are. They're, they're local celebrities, not only in Australia, but over here now and carrying on his legacy. But he just did so much to raise awareness for Australian wildlife and uh, certainly was, um, you know, really uh, um, sort of got me excited about the whole thing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like uh, inspirations like that get, sort of get you started when you're five years old. Well, so that makes me curious when you mentioned later in your story that you hit a point in which you got disenchanted, just disenchanted with the business you were in. What what was happening? Like, What created the burst bubble in a sense of like, do I really want to do this anymore, right? Yeah, I think like England was an incredible place to practice. The level of veterinary practice was fantastic. But I think, um, you know, I was working extremely hard and the level of remuneration in England for a veterinarian was um, – uh, just just wasn't really meeting my expectations. And uh, um, I think, at, you know, my last job in the UK, I was overseeing about 75 staff, four different hospitals um, and uh, practicing heavily myself. And, and I think I was on a salary of about 70,000 US dollars. And, and that's, wow. that's, that's, a, that's, a, um, uh, that's a fantastic salary. Um, but with, you know, when you, uh, spend as long as I did at university with the student debt that I that I had and the hours I was putting in. There was just no really way to increase your remuneration. It was like a bit of a ceiling effect, and that just left me a bit disenchanted. Where I could work in a human hospital and earn double that. So I think there was a a period in my life where. I was working so hard, I was probably a bit burnt out and I really wanted to own my own clinic and that opportunity just evaded me. And that's why I was sort of rethinking my, uh, my, my future really. Yeah. So when you moved to California, did you, did you have an idea <laughs> of what you were going to do and uh, the, the journey you were going to take or was it just, hey, this seems interesting, I want to go and see what happens? Look, I, I, I'd love to be able to tell the podcast that I had it all planned out and I spent all this time studying maps and, and plotted that San Francisco is my place, but it, it was com- complete fluke. Um, <laughs> and um, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you need a bit of good luck and I've certainly had my share of it. But um, yeah, I mean, this buddy from vet school called me and he'd been working in his uncle's vet hospital since he graduated. And this hospital was an outstanding hospital with a great reputation, uh, a real great sense of client service. And uh, I came over here for a month um, uh, with, with my girlfriend at the time. And, um, and uh, um, I needed to get a job offer to activate my visa. And so I came over here. And I interviewed at about seven different jobs and no one would give me a job. And um, it wasn't that I wasn't qualified. If anything, I was overqualified for these jobs. But I think because my visa was associated with a job, I think, you know, they got, you know, all of these were independent practices. I think they got a bit scared off the visa proposition. It's not like they were a big corporate group familiar with, you know, sort of uh, supporting visas. I couldn't get a job. And so with three days to go, I said to my buddy, hey, I can't get a job. I'm going to have to go back to the UK. <clears throat> and he rang his uncle who didn't need any vets. And he, and he told his uncle about the story. And um, overnight, the uncle offered me a job. I only had $1,000 to my name, not even enough to get an apartment. 
And so he gave me another thousand dollars so I could get a depart uh, like a deposit on an depart apartment. Wow. And um and yeah, that so that was my sliding door moment. Like I was literally two to three days and sort of my girlfriend and I had sort of called it quits on America. Would come for a month, it hadn't worked out, and we were gonna head back to the UK. And this amazing man, Dr. Russ Hackler, um uh made it happen for me. And if he hadn't done that, none of this would have happened. So it was him who really uh, I think felt a bit sorry for me and created a position in his hospital. And that job allowed me to stay here. And then Jerob and I bought Dr. Hackler's practice off him about three months later. And that, that started my American dream. Dang. So after you bought his practice, <laughs> hmm. how long was it before you had a, a vision bigger than just running that practice? Um, so I, th I think, um, I think I, I already had a vision of sort of having multiple practices because in England I'd been overseeing multiple practices. So I knew I could do it. Um, but I think what I, what I hadn't done before is owned a practice <laughs> and the, um, I think I swallowed a fly. So if I'm coughing a bit, I think I'm just trying to get that little sucker down. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, yeah, in the, in the UK, you know, I was overseeing practices as part of a bigger corporate group. So I had a lot of help, but in this first practice, I was, you know, we we're doing it all ourselves and, uh, it was really tough. And, um, you know, I, I'd been doing this in the UK. I had an MBA and it almost killed me. And, uh, um, you know, it was it was simply through the fact that um, Jerob and I uh, were were good partners and 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 were good friends as we are to this day. So it was a team effort, um, and also um, uh, you know both our partners uh, helped us a lot. Um, uh, Joe. Um, uh, my partner at the time was, uh, I just couldn't have done it without her. She was like the wind in my sails. And, and I think, you know, entrepreneurship is hard if you don't have a partner who really can support you and allow you to be your best. And, and certainly Joe was that person for me. So I think, you know, despite having all these skills, there are a few times we almost failed where just things were going against us. And, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, that's the power of a good partnership, not only, um, uh, you know, your your personal ro uh, romantic partnership and the support you get from those folks. But in this instance, I had Jared, my business partner. So we were sort of going it through to get through it together. If I'd been going through it by myself, I think it all would have failed several times over. So, yeah. So, well, I'd, I'd yeah. love to I'd love to kind of double click on that if I could, if that was an icon. Yeah. And again, you know, it's it's trite or. So you can feel overused when we talk about the roller coaster experience of being an entrepreneur, but when you live through it, you're acutely aware of the roller coaster experience, right? Yeah. And so, could you take us into an example of a time that you thought this might be it, this this dream might die, and how did you guys come together to get through that? So, I mean, the um, firstly, it was. Um, uh, you know, um, we made some mistakes, mistakes just through my hubris. You know, I'd come from the UK. Um, I'd done really good over there. I knew what I was doing and I came to a practice and we'd acquired it. And I, I, I had good intentions, but I went about that change just too quickly. You know, acquisitions are very different to de novo. You know, you, we, we, we adopted a group of staff who had been working at this practice for many of them over a decade. Wow. And so... Um, uh, you know, what I didn't know 
then with what I do now is those processes uh, need to be really slow, well-communicated transitions. I came in like a bull in a china shop and, and I had good intentions. You know, we, we had a huge loans on this business. We had to make it work quickly, but I just, I just didn't quite know how to do it. And I made a lot of, lot of mistakes with regards to too much change too quickly. Sure. Um, another thing that really, you know, devastated us is Dr. Hackler, who was a mentor of mine and really gave me my start in this country, sadly died in a plane crash um, about six months after I bought the practice. And, and that not only was devastating to me, but devastating to Jerob, who was Russ's great nephew and, and the whole community. And so, um, you know, we, we, we just bought this business. We were so excited about it, not only by the opportunity, but the mentorship that Russ was going to give us and, and, and build that clinic. And then all of a sudden, Russ was gone from our lives. Um, and, and, and so that was just a devastating sure. you know, dagger that, that affected me and everyone else at the practice and, and really um, hit us pretty hard early on. It was certainly unexpected as a new business owner. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You talked about the speed of change. Uh, you know, that was something I was thinking about in terms of you seeing 10 years ahead over in Europe and where we weren't yet thinking about things here in America. And my first thought was like, how do you convince them? Right? Like, cause there's gotta be some kind of learning curve to think about doing it a different way than you're currently doing it. And so I'm just curious as you approach other, it sounds like smaller individual practices, were they very resistant to, to the idea at first or did, was it like, this is the thing we've been waiting on. Tell us how to do this. So I, I think it was the latter. I think like we got a lot of, and we still to this day get a lot of good positivity. Um, you know, we, we, there are now many more competitors in the U S the veterinary space is very attractive because it's sort of recession proof and everybody loves their animals. And, uh, um, um, but we are a bit unique. You know, most of our competitors are, um, are corporate groups. They're not owned by veterinarians. They're owned by businesses or private equity groups. And so I think lots of veterinarians would prefer to leave their staff, their clients and patients in the hands of another veterinarian. But there aren't many individual veterinarians who are buying practices these days. So I think we were a unique solution that a large amount of veterinarians actually prefer to the larger corporate groups. And, and before, sort of, you know, certainly in our region, before I sort of arrived, there, there wasn't that option of, um, you know, something different to the larger corporate groups. It was, it was try and find an individual veterinarian to buy your practice, which was almost impossible for some of these small clinics, all sell to a really large corporate group like Banfield or VCA or NVA. And these are, these are great groups. I have good relationships with them, but um, they're just a little different to how we do things. And I think there were lots of vets who were looking to pass their legacy onto a veterinarian. And so I think, you know, when, we, when I was able to introduce myself to these practice owners, um, I was able um, over, you know, I've been here a decade now uh, to build some tremendous relationships with lots of practice owners. And I feel incredibly proud to this day that a lot of them really want to pass their legacy on to me yeah. um, to, to take care of and, and guide that practice forward. And so 
um, that's that sort of takes us to this day where we're now um, you know I don't have to work as hard to find practices because we get practice owners calling our group asking us if we can take on their legacy and they can join our community of practices which is um, you know it's a dream come true where where people choose you um, as opposed to having to go out and convince them anymore yeah oh that's huge mm. well tell me tell us what does the business look like today? Like, help me understand the business model of vet care. So, um, at the moment, we have sixteen locations, and um, uh, you know, in the scheme of American veterinary groups, uh, we're still pretty small. But but it's a highly fragmented market, and there's approximately thirty thousand veterinary businesses in North America. Um, and we think at the moment, probably, you know, 35 to 40 percent of them are owned by what I would describe as corporations. I sort of define us a little bit differently because we're actually still owned by veterinarians and have no outside business interests. Um, but the, the industry is still highly fragmented compared to somewhere like England. So um, all our um, uh, well, and our hospitals exist in sort of two different um, uh, types. We uh, about half our hospitals are existing standalone veterinary hospitals that we acquired and 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 I was able to take on that legacy from from incredible veterinarians who entrusted me with that responsibility and then about half our locations now are actually de novo locations brand new hospitals and we have a fantastic regional partnership with Petco who you might have heard of and and we oh, yeah. open yeah, we open locations inside their uh, their stores in Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, and that's been an incredible partnership. Petco are just a really on an, a, an awesome mission to really improve the life of pets, and um, they're opening veterinary hospitals within their locations across the country. And I just feel incredibly proud that they've chosen me to sort of, you know, oversee, um, you know, this this region in, the, in Northern California and Pacific Northwest. So that's been a that's been an awesome addition to sort of what we were doing with the with the acquisitions. So it sounds like to me, as I'm listening, that one of the main value adds, obviously, for someone who's looking to retire or get out of the business, is they want to be able to pass this on and know that it's going to keep succeeding, but as a business model, is it that you're able to centralize some of the expenses and share, share some of the expenses and pass along best practices and standardize certain things? Is that, is that kind of the idea? I, I think so. Yeah. And it's a model that's been successful in many other industries, but you know, we've got a, a the veterinary industry, particularly in this country is, is, is pretty old school. Um, uh, you know, a lot of um, uh, practice owners are looking to uh, exit or get out of management because of the, the hardship. And some of these owners want to stay on practicing. They love, still love veterinary medicine, but they just hate all the management. So, gotcha. so we are either able to, you know, acquire the hospital off them completely and, and support them into retirement. Or in some cases, they want to stay on working as a veterinarian. They just don't want to do the management. So we handle all the management of the practice, which allows our local teams and particularly the veterinarians to focus primarily on the client and the patient, which is what they're trained to do. They're not trained to be marketing teams or HR people or finance people. Um, and, and we've hired an incredible group of people who do that centrally, allowing the hospitals to focus on the pet and the pet parent, which is which is pretty important. So, um, yeah, so I, I think our model is particularly unique in a couple of ways. Firstly, um, we're only owned by veterinarians. So when, when I take that legacy on, we find another up-and-coming veterinarian who wants to own a veterinary hospital but can't do it by themselves, and we support them into partnerships so they can build their own legacy. 
And so we sort of, um, you know, without them bringing any money to the table, we give them the gift that that I was given by Dr. Hackler all those years ago to get into practice and, and start their own practice. So that's that's unique in the industry. We're really the only group who allows veterinarians to be owners in practices. Wow. And so we're, we're really the only group in America that's truly owned by veterinarians. Most other groups have a majority ownership by a larger corporate business or private equity. So that's pretty cool. Um, we're also, um, well, thank you. We're also um, uh, um, unique in that our level of practice is pretty advanced. So, you know, many corporate groups in America uh, practice uh, a style sort of, uh, that embrace primarily wellness care and then many more advanced uh, um, procedures and, 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 and practices are referred to specialty hospitals um, where that's not the same in the UK or Australia. And we sort of a practice, practice a British model where instead of we still refer cases and we work closely with regional specialists but we train our vets to a much higher level so our own veterinarians can provide that care to the patient directly so ultrasound's a great example in australia and england all veterinarians do ultrasound at a high level so they can offer that to that patient at the point of care where in america not many vets do do ultrasound they huh. refer it uh, they refer it to a specialist so not only does that client have to drive to a specialist they might have to wait several days for the ultrasound it's often double in price where um we train our veterinarians to do that ultrasound so our vets can have the confidence to provide that to the patient at a local level. So um, we're sort of, I call it advanced general practice, um, but that too is a, a little bit unique in its own right. So, you know, it's, the, it's being owned and led by veterinarians. It's that ownership or equity option for our veterinarians, which is unique. And then lastly, sort of our advanced general practice concept, which makes us particularly unique here in America um, as a veterinary group. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, you know, every business has its own unique set of challenges based on the circumstances it finds itself in or the industry it's in or the problem it's trying to solve for you. What are some of the unique challenges that this, this business has to solve? Well, that's a, that's a great question. It, I mean, firstly, it's an incredible industry. I, I, I've honestly never worked a day in my life. I love being a veterinarian and there's so many caring, phenomenal people in this industry. I just feel really proud to be a part of it. But like all industries, there's some some big issues that, that we're dealing with. Um, one of the biggest that's front and centre at the moment is is burnout amongst amongst veterinary professionals, both veterinarians and technical staff. Yeah. Um, and and that burnout leads to you know we're sort of in a mental health crisis. The suicide rate of female veterinarians is 3.4 times the national average, the highest in the nation. And and we've got a a, a mental health crisis in this industry. So wow. it's a it's a combination of a number of factors. Um, there's there's compassion fatigue, which is a component. Um, there's a huge financial stress on veterinarians. They have probably one of the highest levels of debt coming out of veterinary school, but compared to doctors and dentists, their level of remuneration is half to a third of what those professionals make. So for much of their life, these veterinarians feel trapped in like a financial sort of hole. Um, and then there's the clinical stagnancy. You know, we really try and mentor our vets and teach them new skills. Not many vets do, not many groups do that. Many groups refer everything. So vets just aren't learning. And, and they're people who thrive on learning and learning new skills. So when you take away that learning and development, it really makes work pretty boring. And so I think a culmination of those issues 
make um, being a professional uh, in the veterinary space pretty challenging. And so that's something that uh, the whole industry is dealing with. And certainly in the last year, the whole industry uh, is, you know, really bringing a lot of this stuff to the forefront. And there's some great action uh, across the the industry, um, raising awareness and putting in place, you know, uh, tools and resources to help people. The VIN Foundation uh, the, the, is a fantastic resource that's uh, independent and, and, and really um, well built out to support veterinarians. Um, we've also got a crisis with diversity and inclusion. Um, there's really poor representation of African-Americans and minorities in the veterinary space. Huh. And, that, and that's, that's, a, that's a huge shame because, um, you, you know, as a profession, we get great strength from um, diversity and sh- different experiences. And this industry is not representative of, of uh, the American population. Um, and, and so bringing attention to diversity at all levels, um, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation. You can see I've got the pride flags behind me. You know, yeah. we're trying to really raise awareness for, um, you know, Pride Month in the veterinary space as well. So I think that's a big issue that as a profession we have to come together and really get right. Um, and then, then you know, as a part of all that, there's a there's a veterinary shortage. So, from a recruitment standpoint, we 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 just can't get get veterinarians. I've tried to clone myself. The technology is too far out. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, getting vets is really hard. And part of it is the fact that you know these problems exist. And so I think uh, um, you know for a lot of people looking to get into medical practice perhaps veterinary practice, um, you know, isn't as desirable for some of those reasons. And as a profession, we have to get that right. Because if, if, uh, if we don't get those right, why would you want to become a veterinarian? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the, if the cost is so high, yeah. You know, whether it's the actual cost of debt you go into or the cost of time and energy, you mentioned compassion fatigue, which is a real thing. Uh, I'd love to hear you speak to that for a minute, but if, if that's all they're seeing and they're not seeing the, the, res- the results and the reward and, you know, the part that they got into it for, I can imagine it having a slow kind of push off effect of people that would maybe in other circumstances find themselves really enjoying that job. Right. I think so. And I think a lot of like students who get in the vet are just like me that they wanted to be a vet since they were fired. They're so blinded and focused on that. They don't really think about it before they get into vet school and they don't do their research. They get into vet school and they might only start thinking about this stuff and being aware of this stuff in their second or third year of vet school where they're already halfway through and have all this debt. So yeah. it's, it's about, I mean, we want to attract outstanding candidates to veterinary practice. We need them, but we've got to make sure we really work on these issues to make sure that those outstanding young people who jo- want to join our profession not only have financial certainty um, to reward themselves for all the investment they make financially and from a time perspective into their careers, but also when they come out, we can protect them from a psychological standpoint and make sure that, that, that they have good work-life balance and they, they can be happy mentally because if they can't be happy mentally, they're never going to be their best professional or personal sure. selves, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We see that all the time. I mean, burnout can be physical it can be emotional it can be mental yeah the soul level where compassion and values exist you know um and if 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 that's shut down or fatigued we can't bring our full self to the table we can't you know i like to think about like a rocket that doesn't have all of its systems firing exactly we need all systems firing we need it all working together for you really to have the impact that you could have exactly yeah 
how do you guys how do you guys see uh, the future of what you're doing when you look five years from now is there a serious evolution in your your current business or is it just a continuation and getting you know more saturation in the market like how are you thinking about the future of your business well, people often ask me that. I don't tend to get too hung up on the growth. You know, we, we, we um, because private equity is not involved in our business, we don't, we're not under the same pressure to grow as quickly. Um, and, and, and look, we want to grow quickly. We want to um, expand our footprint and our brand and the good work we're doing. But we're, we're, we're not under quite the same pressures as a group backed by private equity who want to return in five years. And, as, and, you know, there are groups much larger than us who started just a few years ago. You know, we've been going, uh, you know, nine and a bit years. Um, but there's some, good, there's some good stuff to that. You know, we've been able to get it right. You know, we've built out a really so, uh, solid platform. We, can, we, we have a lot more intimate knowledge of the industry that allows us to do things at a high level. So I think, you know, I mean, my dream for the organisation is to grow and expand, um, but 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 do it right. You know, we don't want to um, overgrow ourselves. And I yeah. think, as we've just talked about, there's so many things we have to get right for our veterinary professionals to ensure that we create a great space to 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 come to work. And uh, I think our organisation, um, you know, really is focusing on some things that I believe can 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 lead uh, to veterinarians having a happier professional life. So I think clinical advancement, teaching them advanced skills not only makes work more interesting but as you advance your skill set and serve patients at a higher level not only do you serve the patient and the client at a higher level which feels really good you you then make more money because you are you are producing more and you're doing you've got more expertise and so you're remunerated at a higher level so i do think that a, a big part of our model that encourages us and mentors vets to expand their clinical skill set helps in a couple of ways it makes you know work more enjoyable sure. uh, because you don't have you're, you're sort of um, um countering that clinical stagnancy that we see in the industry um, but vets are able to remunerate themselves at a higher level so i think that's a big part of it um, i think our ownership model really allows veterinarians <clears throat> to reward themselves at a much higher level when you're an owner of a business um, you're often remunerated at a higher level than employees in that business and i think you know with veterinarian uh, student debt going up and up uh, i truly believe that ownership or some sort of equity um, stake in a business is the only way that future veterinarians will really get to the level of remuneration they need to provide wealth for their families and provide the professional lifestyle they deserve. So, um, I, look, I think those things set us up to succeed. And, and because we're unique in doing that, I do think that we're, we're going to um, continue to build a reputation where, you know, we are really the, the, you know, one of the best options for veterinarians who really aspire to grow and continue to learn and, and, and build their own legacy. Um, but we've also got to have a really big focus as we're trying our best to do on inclusion, diversity, mental health, um, awareness and, and, um, and, and mindfulness. They're, they're important to me. You know, I've been through depression. I've, I've, I've had some uh, addiction issues and, and associated with, with um, being an entrepreneur and, and, and just like being consumed by work. You know, when, yeah. you, when you work that much, you, you forget all the other important things in your life. And, and 
you don't realize the time, but slowly that wears you away to the point where you're not your best self. And, and, and to, to maintain that level of work, you, um, uh, you, you cut out all the important things in your life that, that make you your best self, like exercise and healthy eating and sleep and, and reading and travel. Yes. Um, and, and then, and then, you know, to let off steam and, and try and let off that energy, you, 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 you drink too much or, yeah. or you, you know, get into other sort of, um, you know, um, you know, addictive aspects of your life to try and counter that. And, and that was certainly my story. And, and, and I, you know, went through a really tough time a couple of years ago, um, associated with that sort of burnout myself. And so, you know, it's affected me. And I think that's why I'm so passionate to try and get this right for my veterinarians and, and help all veterinarians in the veterinary space, whether or not they work with us to try and, uh, support them and encourage them to think about, um, uh, you know, getting that balance right because, um, you know, there's so many important things in life. Work is, is for many vets, is a purpose and an important part of who we are, but it needs to be well balanced with other important things in our life like family, friends, and, and our own personal health and safety. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I'd say the most common thing that's been asked of my business in the last year is to do teaching and training for companies on that. The, just the mental health, the, the emotional health, the, the overall well-being of a person and, and really empowering them to know what they need and to set up habits and rituals and things that like really feed them. Because if you're going to give so much, you've got to be able to return so much, right? You've got to exactly. balance that equation of like, if I'm going to give energy, I've also got to recoup energy so that I have more to give. Right. Exactly. And I, and I think, you know, we talk to vets and veterinary students about, you know, um, uh, you know, using a sort of three ring analogy where we, where we look at overarching happiness as a veterinarian with, you know, there's a ring uh, as being a professional and how do you maximize your happiness as a veterinary professional? Um, how do you maximize your capacity to um, live your best personal life as a separate ring? And then that financial ring and all of them have some overlap, but yeah, the Venn think, diagram overlap. Exactly. But like, I think <clears throat> for many veterinarians professionally, they're, they're not satisfied because of burnout, long hours. Um, they feel under remunerated compassion fatigue. They're not learning anything. They're not mentoring. They're not being mentored. All of those things contribute to many vets not being satisfied professionally and then financially, they're in a huge debt hole. They're often under-remunerated. Um, the vet schools and the industry hasn't really done a great job of giving veterinarians financial literacy to, to help them come up with a financial plan. And so how can you be, how can you be happy personally when your professional life isn't, isn't great and your financial yeah. life isn't great? And, and, and you then start to understand why vets are so um, susceptible to uh, mental health and burnout because, you know, it's, it's much easier to deal with a hard day if you're financially secure and you, you own your own home and you paid off your student debt. And, and, and it's much easier to go through those long, tough days if you're learning something and you've got a great mentor. But if you don't have those things, I just think we're so much more susceptible to being vulnerable to compassion fatigue because there's so much other pressure in our life that just makes it, it just too much to bear for one person. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was, <clears throat> I was working on a project with some folks in the NFL uh, a few years ago about doing, providing some coaching to athletes because of their 
experience of mental, you know, uh, mental health issues and destructive choices, CTE, stuff like that. A lot of which I have zero specialty in, right? But they wanted to know what coaching could be done for them. And one of the things that was interesting, just as I was learning about that industry, is that players that have a significant hobby outside of sports overall tend to last longer and be healthier. So like Interesting. somebody they mentioned was a, a, a <clears throat> from Atlanta. So we, I grew up watching the Atlanta Braves and one of our best players was a guy named Chipper Jones. He's a hall of fame mm. infielder mm. and he was an avid hunter mm. outside of baseball. Mm. And he would always tell young players, get a hobby, get a hobby. And they're like, why mm. baseball's my life. And he was like, that's mm. the problem. Mm. He's like, baseball can't be the only thing you, he's like, you can't ride or die on this one thing. You need family, you need friends, you need hobbies, you need things outside of, so you have multiple identities that kind of buoy you. Yeah. You're having a tough time in this business, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And I made all those mistakes. I was so consumed by my work that I didn't invest in my relationship, my family, my friends. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm an obsessed trail runner, cyclist, mountain biker, skier, fly fisherman, um, obsessed with those things, but I didn't do it any. I was so busy with work, working seven days a week that yep. none of those things I did. I didn't read any books. I didn't, didn't, didn't call my mom. Um, I, you know, all those important things and didn't do any of that. And, and, and I think that's where my life fell apart when, yeah. when I, I'd failed to invest in those important things and, and, and just so consumed by work. And yes, I loved work. So it, it wasn't of really, which that's makes it harder. It makes it harder because I truly love it. Yep. But, not realizing that all those other things uh, balance me and, 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 and the investment in those people and those pursuits allowed, gave me energy back so that I could be the best version of myself professionally. And, and, and I think, you know, you know, back to, um, you know, that baseballer, I mean, such a great recommendation I give to young vets these days is yeah. make sure you're investing in these, these things. And everybody's different. I don't think there's one hard and fast rule for everybody, but I do think you've got to know yourself, um, which, which, you know, I'm a bit embarrassed, you know, I'm, I'm 38 now, two years ago, I was 36 and I didn't truly know myself and know my limitations and, and know how to read myself. Um, and, and, and just, you know, sort of, um, and, and it wasn't conscious, but I was just so focused on my business sure. and, and almost obsessed with it that, um, uh, due to, due to that ignorance, just as focused on that and nothing else. And, and, you know, that, that self-awareness, that understanding your capacity, your threshold, understanding what's important to you, making time for that, um, so that you can, um, you know, be your best professional self, uh, is so important and something. Yeah, just learned learned uh, learned the hard way, but but um, you know, I mean, that's the power of our group. You know, veterinarians who join us to become an owner of a practice, hopefully, never have to make that mistake because I'm able to pass on that yeah. experience to them and say, hey. You know, you're overdoing it. Um, I've been there. You know, let's get this balance right. Make sure you take the time out to spend time with your family. Make sure you pursue a holiday. Make sure you have time off, you know. Um, you, you know, that that's – and as opposed to, you know, if these veterinarians went and did it by themselves, they'd make all the mistakes I've made. And that's, that's sort of a, a cool thing of our model where we can share those experiences so that our new partners can benefit from that mentorship, which is, which is nice. Man. Yeah, I, I resonate with that deeply. You know, about five years ago, uh, everybody's got a different catalyst, right? When you read the right thing at the right time or hear the right thing at the right time, I was 
reading the book The One Thing by Gary Keller. Have you ever oh, read yeah. that? Yeah, I have read that. Yeah, it helped okay. a lot. Yes. And I was reading that book in the middle of my entrepreneurial journey where I had risked it all. I changed careers. I had young kids. I still have young kids. They didn't go away, but I had even younger kids at the time. <clears throat> and I was just locked in on making this successful. <clears throat> and I'll never forget in his book, he said, everyone is juggling five balls at all times. And it was like your personal health, your integrity, your, your close relationships, your professional life, and some friends and family or something like that, some other fifth one. But what got me was he said, one of those is made of, uh, one of those is made of rubber. Four of those are made of glass, but we treat them like the, it's the other way around. And he said, the professional ball is made of rubber. You can drop it more times than you would think, and it'll still bounce back. Yeah. The other four are made of glass. Be careful how many times you drop them because they can crack and never be put back together. Yeah. And I sat up in the middle of my bed and I was like, I'm dropping those balls all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was 40 pounds overweight. Yeah. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't really doing anything intentional about my marriage. Like all sorts of things that I was realizing like, oh, I'm just dropping these balls over and yeah. over. Yeah. It was a huge wake up call for me. Yeah, no, I, I, I was in that same, exact same same position. And, and uh, now sort of, you know, sweeping up the glass and trying to put it all back together again. And, and, you know, it would have, would have been good to know what I do now then. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I feel lucky, you know, there's always a silver lining. My silver lining is that I'm pleased I figured it now, out now than when I was 68 and, and right. didn't have a chance to get it right and, 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 and be a better version of myself. And, um, you know, I feel I, I just know myself so much better these days having gone through that, like you know, real real low point. And I'm now much more conscious of, of my mental health and physical health and all those other important things in my life. But um, yeah, I, I think that book's, book's interesting, the fact that, you know, we often seek to be multitaskers and try and do it all. And ultimately, you can't juggle that many balls. And, and I think trying to focus on less and do it at a higher quality is now something I, 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 I try and focus on and with a specific focus on, on things outside the business. And, 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 you know, I'm in a bit of a lucky position. My business is now going really well and, and doesn't need as much as me. So I feel just fortunate that I can dedicate some time to those things. Yeah. Um, you, you know, if I, if the business hadn't grown as I'd, as I'd wanted it to, and I was, it was still needing that much of me, um, would have been harder to, to put these focuses into other areas. Sure. But I do, I do think you're right. I do think a good business concept does have some inherent resilience. You know, we tend to think that, oh my God, if we don't work one day, it's going to all fall apart. I, 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 if it's a well thought out business, well structured, I do think I'm now realizing that it has some more inherent resistance and, and yeah. I can go away for a week and I can come back and actually it's probably done better without me being there. You know what I mean? Um, um, yeah. So uh, and if it's not, if it's not, it exposes a weakness that, that we could improve. Right. It, it does. Because like if a business is so reliant on your presence, then, then it's got a ways to go to continue to build out its strategy because you know, as entrepreneurs, you've only got so much energy to put into it. And yep. those businesses have to get to a level of, of um, uh, self-sufficiency to allow you to um, uh, um, take time off to re-energize to, yes. for, for the next uh, wave of growth or for another uh, uh, um, opportunity or something yeah. like that. And for so, the business itself to, to grow bigger than you. Exactly. Because if, exactly. You're, if you're central to it, you're also the cap of it. E exactly. It needs exactly. to be able to grow beyond you. 
Exactly. Yeah, that, that was a great learning through, you know, it's interesting when you go through sort of a bit of a breakdown, you, you know, all sense of um, arrogance or confidence is sort of swept away. You know, you really get scraped back to your bare bones and realise <laughs> that, 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 um, that, that it, it takes a team. And, and uh, I think I realised that, that um, the team I had around me were just exceptional and I could do more to allow them more autonomy and allow them to really take ownership on parts of the business and, and let go of it a bit. And, and, um, and, and some of that was sort of um, a necessity for my own mental health, but it allowed the business to grow far beyond um, what it would have done if I just tried to continue to do it my way forevermore. And so um, that was a great lesson. And, and it was sort of, it happened out of sort of, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, a disaster or an or a, or a unexpected event. Sure. But, a, but it was a silver lining that came out of that sort of personal growth, allowing, you know, the business to grow far beyond just, just little old me. I love that. I had so many other questions I wanted to ask you, but I feel like <laughs> they are they would pale in importance to what we've just talked about the everything from inclusion and diversity to mental health. And now even to just personal growth and expansion of self. I just want to stay there. I want to let that be the highlight of this interview. Cause that was really special what you've just been talking about. So let's dive into our lightning round questions. If you don't. Yeah. Mind. Yeah. Cool. Happy five talk. questions that we've asked every founder so far. Number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Um, I had a little think about this. I think like touching on what we've just been over, like the concept of being kind and, and, and being kind to others, but most importantly, be kind to yourself. And, and yeah. I think in this profession, um, we need to do a lot of that because there's a lot of people out there who, who are vulnerable and, and, and are burnt out and challenging with their personal circumstance. And, and I think if we're kinder to ourselves, hopefully we can, um, you know, dedicate more time to, uh, to, to, to being a better version of ourselves um, and or seeking support um, and resources and being kind to others. I, I think, um, you know, uh, right now in the veterinary uh, profession, it's very busy um, and everyone's under pressure, under stress, you know, having kindness to others in, in our um, environments, I think really goes a long way to ensure that the teams, you know, get through some of those tough days. So um, that's something I try and think about in my day-to-day -day actions. I love it. All right, number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? So I think, I think some of the best advice is uh, staying connected to your business, uh, your people, your clients, and your purpose. So I know we just talked about how, you know, I, I try to move away from sort of being more um, micromanaging to my business, but I still want to be involved. You know, I'm still an active veterinarian. I still help out. I'm still in clinics, working as a veterinarian, serving clients, see, seeing patients, working next to my teammates. I never want to lose that, no matter how big the business grows because I think it's really important that I am connected to the people and and understand how my teammates are, are winning how they're how they're how they're struggling and how I can best help them uh, as I guide the business forward so I think that's that's something that um, you know some people have, have told me in the past and and I, I follow uh, closely 
Um, I think the worst advice is early on when we when we got going with 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 acquiring some hospitals. A couple of brokers I worked with recommended that when we buy a hospital, we just terminated all the staff and and just have rehired the people in in the clinic. And um, you know, I think there are a lot of groups that do that. They, 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 because when you acquire a hospital, the biggest challenge is the HR piece and supporting all those people through that transition. Um, but we never did that. We always stuck to our guns by keeping everybody on and keeping their pay the same and trying to support those folks through what is a really tough transition. And not all, not everybody stays. Certainly, some people realise they want to move on to different pastures. But I think, you know, we truly believe those people are such an important part of that business and we want to give them every opportunity to to learn about us and, and determine if they want to stay on and contribute to what we're doing from a business standpoint. So I think that was the worst bit of advice I ever got and something that uh, we've sort of, um, you know, always done the opposite. Love it. All right, question number three, what currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? It's finding and retaining veterinarians. Um, uh, you know, we're, at a, we're in a recruitment shortage, so finding great veterinarians, uh, which we look, we have a lot more success than others, and we feel so lucky to attract amazing vets, but it's tough. And then keeping them and, and, and really making sure that we can support their growth and mentor them at a higher level. That's what I spend most of my time thinking about. Love it. Such a, such a good response. It makes sense when you're talking about the unique challenges of your industry. <clears throat> And I'm sure even now coming out of COVID, that's got to be even heightened. Yeah. Um, okay. Number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? Well, I, uh, this, um, in the veterinary space, I think um, probably my biggest goal, and this will make some people laugh, but there's this online pet pharmacy called Chewy. And, and uh, my life's goal is to take down Chewy. So, um, it's, uh, I, I haven't, I, ha- I haven't thought about that business. Well, I have actually thought about the business plan a bit, but it, it, it leads on from the veterinary business, but I think, um, you know, there's the opportunity to uh, create something a bit different in that space. And, and, uh, that's going to be a life goal of mine to take Chewy down. I love it. Oh man, I love I love a little rivalry. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Well, it's a, it's a little bit David and Goliath, but everyone likes an underdog, you know. There we go. There we go. I'm betting on you, buddy. I'm betting on you. Oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> All right, number five. This is our fun, creative question. Take it however you want. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, and you get to tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back, and what would you tell that younger version of yourself? So I'd probably go back to maybe about five years ago when the business was starting to ramp up a bit. And, and I'd, I'd like to give myself the advice that we've just talked about, you know, sure. and, and, and probably mostly for me, it's about investing equally in your family and your relationships, friends and family, um, uh, because really without them, you can't be your best self. And, and uh, I have a lot of amazing family and friends and, 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 um, and didn't do the best to invest in them. And, and, and um, I've, you know, I've been lucky to achieve a lot of great success, but I think I, I could have avoided some real hardships in my life if I'd focused on them uh, um, more as a priority than, than the business. And uh, that's something I, I, I uh, yeah, wish, wish I could have done differently. Love it. Makes sense. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking time. I know you're at a conference right now and you've made time for us. We're honored to have you on the podcast. It's so exciting to see 
someone is, who's, who's got such a great heart as you and also a brilliant business mind, really able to make a difference in a, such an, uh, an important industry. And thank you. And we're rooting for you and excited to see your continued success. Oh, mate, my great pleasure anytime. And thanks for including me and, and just great to connect with you and uh, all the best with the podcast. Thank you, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.